Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Thank you, Ellie. You all can have a seat. And as we were singing that song, you know, the, the first thing I was thinking of, all my life you have been faithful, all my life you have been so, so good, and I will sing of the mercies of God. Yesterday in our church building there, we had a memorial service uh, for a, a longtime member of our church named Danny Steiner. And uh, they, like most memorial services, there was a program and people shared their memories of him. And this is a man who was faithful to the very end, to his family, faithful in his relationship with Christ. And there was a surprise in the memorial service, and there was a slot for a song to be led. And uh, earlier in the service, the songs had been led, and um, so there was, most people thought that this song is going to be led by a, a lady from the piano. And they were surprised to see instead a video recording of Danny, who had passed away, leading a worship song. And so this, as we were singing this song, I was singing the man, all his life, Danny was faithful to the Lord, and in the very end, even as he is now with Jesus, he was still singing his praises here, but we know where he's singing his praises there as well. And man, I, I want that to be true about my life as well. The faithfulness, the goodness of God may be present for us. And Well, this morning, we're going to finish out a series um, that we've been in First Peter chapter, uh, the book of First Peter, and we'll be looking at chapter 5. And the... The theme of 1 Peter has been hope and hostility and holding on to holiness. And that's really been the challenge uh, in this letter to the believers, the church that would hear this letter, uh, is how do you hold on to your faith when there are forces against it, when you're being ridiculed and made fun of? Have you ever heard the, the phrase, practice what you preach? You guys have heard that, right? <laughs> well, it's interesting as, as I've been preaching through this and we've been talking about suffering and hostility and people that oppose your faith. Last week I said, you know, most of us probably really haven't had to deal with true suffering for our faith. Most of us probably haven't had to, to deal with like major ridicule, maybe little comments here and there. And the, the theme of First Peter has been no matter what kind of hostility you face, keep the mind of Christ. Like, don't ever, don't fight fire with fire. When people come at you, don't respond in that way. Respond how Jesus responded when he was abused and, and ridiculed. Respond with love and compassion. Well, this last week, I had an opportunity to practice what I preached. Uh, I, I got an email from somebody who's very close to me, and the email was just full of anger and hostility and even ridicule for my faith. And I was processing with my wife, my beautiful wife, and all the things come up, right? How do you defend yourself? And what do you say back? And I thought, wow, this sounds familiar. <laughs> I've been studying and preaching and preparing these messages. And so I hope that you, as you are a Christian, as you walk out your life as a, as a follower of Jesus, that the things that you read in God's word connect from your head to your heart. That is not just something we nod to on Sundays, but it's something we consider that we let plant inside of us and produce fruit in us because that's why we do what we do. That's why we're opening up God's word today to be transformed by it and to walk in the ways of Jesus. Amen. So we spent the last two months walking through this letter to the church and this morning we're going to wrap it up with the final chapter, chapter five. So if you have your Bibles, 
I'll go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, I'm sure you have a phone. So you can look it up on the internet or you can download a Bible app. There's a bunch of free ones. So 1 Peter chapter 5, this is the last chapter in this letter. Uh, This is our ninth week as we've been walking through this asking, okay, this was written a long time ago, but what does it mean for us? And as we end this letter to the churches, to us, um, as we end with this last chapter, we're going to begin at the end. We're going to begin at the end of the chapter, the very end of this letter, looking at verse 12 through 14. It says this, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. So this is the end of the letter. And you may wonder about that last line, not the kissing line. Um, We don't really do that in our culture, but we do high fives and handshakes and COVID elbow bumps or whatever you call it. Now, the line you may be wondering about is that line where he says, Babylon. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. Most likely, Babylon references the city that Peter was writing this letter from, the city of Rome. And if you're wondering, Babylon is not an affectionate term <laughs> for Rome. The, the people of Israel would know this uh, as, a, as a, Babylon represents occupation and oppression, also represents judgment. So when he writes, he who is in Babylon, or she who is in Babylon, he's most likely talking about the church, she, who is there in Rome, who is thinking of these churches that are going to receive this letter. So what's been the point of the letter? Well, Peter says right here in his closing remarks, the point of the letter is encouragement and reminder. Reminder of the grace of God and to stand fast in it. And I don't care how long you've been going to church, how many times you've read the Bible, we all need to be reminded of the grace of God. We need the gospel preached continually to us. And yesterday as I was at Danny's memorial service and Uh, what was amazing about it was the grace of God was being shared in this uh, through the stories of the people that remembered Danny from those who knew Danny. And Danny, at the end of his life, everybody in that room, everybody in the building could attest to the fact that Danny stood fast, that he held tight to the grace of God as his body failed, as his mind failed, the grace of God was present in his life. And so that's what Peter wants. He wants for every church that would have received this letter and every church that receives this letter since to be reminded of the goodness of God, the grace of God. So uh, framed with this understanding, uh, in this final chapter, Peter gives some final, very passionate instructions to the church. And he opens up with instructions for the leadership of the church, but also for the followership of the church. Look at 1 Peter 5 Verse 1 with me. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, 
as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. So after giving these instructions to the church in the previous four chapters, Peter is focusing in in his last remarks on the leadership of the church. Why is that? Leadership matters. Leadership affects everything, whether it's leadership in the home, leadership in the workplace. When a sports team endures years of losing, guess who is fired? The coach. When a once successful company is now struggling to turn a profit, the CEO is replaced. When corruption and abuse take place in an organization, the leaders are held responsible for fostering the environment that that could take place in. 25 mile power speed limit, please. On the flip side, when a once losing sports team turns things around, it's often because the culture has changed. Back in the early, well, was it 2010, 2011, when Pete Carroll was hired as the coach of the Seahawks. Does anybody remember life before Pete Carroll? No, most people don't want to, right? <laughs> losing season after losing season. I mean, they even lost to the 49ers back then. It's crazy. But what happens? Well, Pete Carroll comes in and he begins to change the culture. Now, obviously, having a pro bowler like Russell Wilson doesn't hurt either. But even then, the culture is adapted and formed around leaders, Russell Wilson being one as well. When a business culture values the people as much as they value the product that is being produced, then everyone thrives in that place. So we know that leadership matters in the world around us, and the same is true in the church. Leadership matters in the church. So in his final words to the church, Peter appeals to those who are leading the church to lead well, and he specifically gives them three areas to focus on. I don't know if you noticed those as we just read that. But he gives, us, he gives three areas, and we'll unpack those in just a moment. But first I want to point out the primary leadership term used here and in most of the New Testament writings is the word elder. I'm starting to smell burgers, so I'm going I'm to preach shorter today. The primary leadership term used in scripture to denote leadership in the church is elder. So a a brief background on where this term comes from. What is an elder? This term is basically carried over from the Old Testament form of leadership in the Jewish community. Elders were both older, hence the term, but they're also wiser. They had more maturity and life experience. They were more spiritually and experientially mature. In the New Testament writings, we often see elder, overseer, or pastor used as primary roles of leadership in the church. And these roles are essentially used interchangeably. They're different kind of facets of the same role. In nearly every place that the term elder is used in the New Testament, it is always used in the plural. Not just one dude that's responsible, but several So eldership is almost always plural. And in the New Testament, elders are almost always recognized by the church itself. 
So before I became pastor here at Sunset Community Church, I came and preached a couple times. You guys got to know me. And then the church said, yeah, we think he's adequate. Adequate enough to be a pastor here at this church. So with elders in view, Peter charges them to do three things. And he uses the language here. uh, He uses elder as the defining term. But he uses the imagery of a pastor or a shepherd, which doesn't resonate with us unless you grew up on a farm. But this idea of pastoring or shepherding a flock of sheep is kind of the, 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 the picture that he has in mind as he shares these challenges, really charges to the leadership of the church. The first one is in verse 2. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Guess what a, a grudging shepherd does? He checks his phone a lot. He, he falls asleep on the job. He, he gets annoyed at the sheep when they wander off. Peter doesn't want that type of shepherd for the church. He wants a shepherd that loves the flock, that, that takes every, everyone uh, as the most valuable in it. And the role of, the, of a pastor, of an elder, is a, is a heavy one. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that bears much responsibility. So often when I'm driving to our building on Sunday mornings, I begin to think of the people in our church, the, the, the ones that are dealing with health issues, the marriages that are struggling, those that are having a hard time in work. I, I feel the weight of the church, and, and I pray for you. I pray for you all the time. I care about you. I care about how your families are and how your workplace is and how your health is. The, the weight of being a leader, a pastor in a church is, is very heavy. But it's also full of joy. When I was a youth pastor, one of my students came to me age of 14, 15, and he says, hey, I, I'm thinking about trying drugs. What do you think? I was like, what do you think I think? <laughs> The next couple of years were this relationship with this young man who knew what he should do, but really wanted to try other things. And it, and it broke my heart and his parents' heart, but I loved him. I, I was there for him. I said, man, I, I, I'll never cut you off, even though I completely disagree with the decisions you're making. Fast forward years later, that's the heartache of pastoring, but the joy of pastoring is he quit doing drugs. He joined a missions organization and began to preach the gospel in faraway countries. And then he called me one day and he said, hey, I met this girl and we're going to get married and would you officiate the wedding? And I remember standing up there uh, officiating his wedding and thinking, wow, what a joy this is to have known him for so many years and to be invested in his life and to see what the Lord has done. He's held him through his own sin. He's freed him from that sin. And now the Lord has all these beautiful blessings for him. So the role of a pastor, of a leader in the church, is a heavy role. It's not something to be taken lightly. And, and there are times when pastors and, and church leaders, they're, they're running on empty and they're overwhelmed. And all of us go through seasons like that, right? But we also know that those seasons, they're not sustainable. We can't continue to operate like that. Because if you do, it can lead to being numb or joyless going through the motions in your ministry. 
So what Peter is trying to point out to those that are in this role in the church as pastors and elders is if you can't be leading out of this deep love, if you can't find moments of joy, that's what God wants you to do. And if you can't do that, there there may be a a, a reason for you to step back, to not be in that position. Why? Because leadership matters. A joyless leader will have a joyless church. One without vision, one with apathy, with no desire to reach the neighborhoods and the communities for the gospel. So this is important. The other two charges are also important, and they they intersect with so many issues we've seen in church leadership in our culture over the years. Look at verse 3. Peter just goes right for it here. He's not going to waste his words in this letter. Verse 3, he says that, Elders and pastors, they're not to be pursuing dishonest gain, but they're to be eager to serve. They're not to lord it over those entrusted to them, but they're to be examples to the flock. Look at that first one again. To not pursue dishonest gain, but be eager to serve. And this is where I've seen so many times in church culture that celebrity culture has infiltrated the church. And it's infiltrated the the minds and the hearts of those who are in leadership where they, maybe they, they helped start a church and the church began to grow. And, and then all of a sudden people set, started saying, man, you're, you're a really good preacher and you should put that on, on podcasts and you should get that on the TV. And they go, oh, maybe I should. And, and they begin to do that. And, and then all of a sudden, instead of being a pastor that cares for the flock, they think, well, the, the flock should care about me. They should be serving me. And in fact, this flock, that's not big enough. I need a bigger flock. I, I need more exposure. And this is what our celebrity culture does to us. It does it on an individual level too. That's Instagram and Facebook. They've created this me first culture. And if we don't think that it infiltrates the church and even the leadership of the church, then we're just being naive. But this was written 2,000 years ago. So it's timeless, right? And so we see this when we see a pastor fall in a very public way and we go, how could that happen? Look at the ministry he had. Well, this is how it happens. Their heart for being a pastor changed. They started to, to view the, the ministry that God had given them, and they started to pursue dishonest gain. This was one of the undoings of Mars Hill Church some years ago. It started with a book scam, and then everything unraveled from there. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, and this is the the example we see from Jesus is not to ever have power over, but instead to have power under. Servant leadership is what Jesus modeled so well. There's this moment in Jesus' ministry where he's got the 12 disciples, and in in that culture, uh, he was the man. He was the rabbi. They were following him. They were hanging on every word that he would say. And in one of their gatherings, they were shocked when Jesus came out with a a towel wrapped around his waist. And he knelt down. He said, I'm going to wash your feet. And they were like, whoa, time out. What are you doing? Jesus was demonstrating to them why he was there. He was there for them, to serve them, to bring life transformation to them. He loved them so much not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. So these three challenges, they all come on the heels of this 
prolonged word to the church to have the attitude of Christ while dealing with cultural and social opposition. And so as he closes these instructions with a reminder that even though elders and pastors have responsibility, you're still not in charge. And I love this line. He says, after these instructions, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There's two things in that. One is the chief shepherd. That's not you. I, as a pastor of the church, am an under-shepherd of Jesus. And number two, where does the rewards come from? They come from God. Now, real quick time out here. They do come from God. Ultimately, they are a beautiful thing of his rewards for us in heaven. But this last week, we were, my family and I were camping Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Woodby Island, it was beautiful. And I came back home, and on my back patio, there was a Traeger barbecue with a bow on top. And I don't know who put it there, so I'm looking at people's eyes right now. Is anybody looking away from me? A kid just raised their hand. I'm pretty sure it wasn't you. But. So if you were the one that gave us a Traeger, thank you. And you're invited over for dinner tonight, so... You just got to come up and reveal yourself. All right. So this is what Peter wants to remind. He's very st- strong words for the leadership of the church. You are an under-shepherd. You are to pastor out of the way that Jesus pastored his, his flock. And then he zooms out with three more charges, three more exhortations, challenges to the whole church. He says this, in the same way, you, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders so he wants to make sure, like, as he's giving these instructions to the elders, this is not licensed to then rebel against them if, if they're having issues, because I, I have issues. You all know me. I'm not going to be a perfect leader. But he's still saying, hey, still, if you are part of these churches, submit yourselves to the elders. And then he says this to everybody. All you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Look at somebody right now and say, humility. Now, you're talking about yourself. You're not telling somebody else to be humble. He says, close your, yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Since one of the key themes of this letter to the churches is suffering, isn't it interesting that in the ending of the letter, there is a challenge to be humble? The, The key to understanding this call to humility is found in the second part of that statement. Humble yourselves. Why? Because, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. In in the face of opposition, we often try to stand up and try to to take what we think should be ours. Wait a second. You don't know me. You shouldn't treat me like that. Uh, We we try to take our own respect and our own privilege and our own authority when we come under attack. But what if, what if the humbling situation we're in 
is actually a part of God's plan for our life. Now, this isn't to say we're to be a doormat, to be abused or used, but but since through Jesus we have access to God, our first response in trying times shouldn't be, I deserve better than this. It should be, hey God, how do you think I should respond here? I had to, to wrestle with that this last week when I got this, this communication from somebody close to me. I mean, I thought, how dare this person? They don't know me. I'll tell them everything that I, I do right and I'm justified in doing. And, and, and I could have done that. But my first question is, wait a second. Lord, how should I respond to this person? That's a lot harder to do sometimes. So what if the situations we're going through that humble us are actually a part of God's plan for our life. And the promise is clear. He says, when we walk in humility, we walk in the ways of Jesus, and God will lift us up at the right time. Like if if people are lying about you and they're saying untrue things about you, God is on your side here. The truth will be made known. Isn't that a comforting thing to know? So, Humility is important, and, and we see actually in Scripture, sometimes humility is, a, is almost a prerequisite for serving the Lord. Like, if you go to God and you go, all right, God, here's the plan. I'm really good at this, really good at this, really good at this. Put me to work. God's like, time out. Humility is a prerequisite for serving. Again, how did Jesus humble himself? How did he serve his disciples? By washing their stinking feet. So no matter what, this attitude of humility is so important to foster in our lives. For leaders, it combats against our selfish tendencies and the celebrity culture around us. So in times of feeling underappreciated or undervalued, humility centers on us on where our real worth comes from. So for these particular churches who are feeling under pressure and marginalized, they most likely felt something that many others in our culture today feel in heightened ways right now. After this reminder of humility, he then says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a direct quote from Psalm 55, verse 22. And it ties into the relationship God wants to have with us as his children. Anxiety is at all-time highs in our nation, in our culture, in our society. And that was before a pandemic. And so these words are so appropriate for us today. And what, what Peter wants us to know is that we can literally come to God and just dump on him. Like we can say everything we're feeling. You don't have to be like, oh, this, this shows a lack of faith or I'm not just, God doesn't want to hear these complaints. No, no, he is literally saying, come and get it, give it all to me. Dump it all out. I want to carry that burden for you. I want to be right there with you. Cast it all on me. What a, what a beautiful picture of the relationship that an almighty God wants to have with his people. This is a huge difference between Christianity and other religions. God actually knows how we feel in our anxiety because he experienced what it meant to be human. Fully God, fully man, he knows what that's like. So why wouldn't we 
take our anxiety to him. Somebody once said to me, if it's important enough to worry about, it's important enough to pray about. What have you not prayed about that you should have prayed about? Anybody ever lost their keys and said, Lord, help me find my keys? Man, more of you should do that because I know most of you have lost your keys at one point. Have any of you stressed about your finances and, and your first thought was, I just need to work, get a different job? Instead of saying, man, maybe God cares about this. Like every aspect of our life, Jesus loves us so much. He says, you can bring those things to me. If it's important enough to worry about, it's important enough to pray about. And we live in a time where our culture is experiencing this anxiety at all-time highs. And and I think some of it's due to social media, uh, where initially social media was more about inspiration. Now it's about comparison, right? It's about news media. Like, it doesn't matter how much progress we're making with a pandemic. The news media is going to make it seem like, man, things are terrible. The world's ending tomorrow. Right? We, we had a heat wave that was historic, and the, the world's going to burn up tomorrow. Like, if you read the news media, you think these things, right? How much peace does that bring you? None. Social media, news media, what we stream... These things directly feed into our anxiety. So we may not be suffering uh, in America persecution for our faith, but many of us have a deep suffering in our soul. And the solution is not more media, but more connection. Connection with God and connection with God's people. And it's been so healing for me during this pandemic to just have a cup of coffee with somebody. Jessica and I, early on in the pandemic, did Zoom double dates. You guys grab a drink, we'll grab a drink, grab a snack. We'll see you at 8 o'clock online. We set the computer up on a little stool as if they were sitting in our front room. And just that connection (sighs) alleviates some anxiety. So God works through that. He alleviates our anxiety when we come to him and when we're in relationship with each other. And then finally, uh, Peter wants us all to wake up. Verse 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. He's used this phrase before. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Wake up! Understand that the battle you're in is a spiritual battle. When people come at you with those words, there is a a spiritual force behind those words. When you wrestle with your temptation, there is a spiritual force trying to bring that temptation in front of you. In the church, the people of God has been under attack since the beginning. And while the tactics may change from generation or culture, the war is as real as it's ever been. And I wonder if too many in the church in America under-spiritualize things, not over-spiritualize them. So if you belong to Jesus, you are a threat. He's going to do, the enemy is going to do whatever he can to make you forget about what Jesus has done for you. He's going to use your own shame He's going to use the sin you committed this morning or last night to think you shouldn't go to church. He's going to do whatever he can to disconnect, to sever your relationship with God. 
He's a lion looking for someone to devour. And the family of believers is undergoing suffering. This was written 2,000 years ago, but it's still true today. And you've heard me talk about believers in China, North Korea, in Burma, in Iraq, in Iran, have literally had to flee for their lives. The most persecuted group of people in the world to this day is Christians. What is also true is that as Christians, we're on the same path as Jesus. While we may have to endure some suffering in this life, we know that we belong to God and the promises of God are the truest thing. Amen. So stay humble. Give your anxiety to God. Stand firm against the devil. And then lastly, through it all, keep your perspective elevated. Verse 10 and 11, we'll close with this. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And the church said, amen. What do you believe in? What is the truest thing about you? What are you living for? Life will make you ask these questions. When you go through hard times, when you experience new seasons, when you wake up and 10 years have gone by and you're thinking, what? Why am I still feeling this emptiness? What do you believe in? What is the truest thing about you? What are you living for? This letter was written to Christians. It was written to Christians who have found the answer to these questions in God, who made his love known to them. So now they believe in him. The truest thing about them is that they are loved by God and are part of his family. And so they are living all of life to make God known. So if you are a Christian, keep your perspective elevated. Set your sights on Jesus and his life-changing love for you. And if you aren't a believer in Christ, what are you waiting for? You won't find the answers to these questions anywhere else but in the one who made you. Jesus made the love of God known to you by experiencing suffering and death on your behalf so that you would have a way through death and suffering, that it wouldn't have the final word. But the only way through death and suffering comes by knowing and trusting him. He's the way, and he invites you to come to him so that you can fully know and be fully known by God. So you can answer the question, what do you believe in? What's the truest thing about you? What are you living for? I hope that you would find that answer in Jesus. And when we dismiss in just a moment, I would love to pray with you if you're ready to make that decision. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us that has been preserved in your word, that has been demonstrated by your people from generation to generation to generation. Lord, the very land that we're standing on now 
is evidence of your grace in our lives. Evidence of those that have gone before us in this church family. Lord, I pray that as we celebrate each other in relationship, that there would be connections made today. But the greatest connection has to be with you. So if we're a Christian that has gone astray, would you lead us back? If we're somebody who has never said yes to you, does not place their faith in you, I pray that today would be the day. Your great love, Lord, would be made known. Keep our perspective elevated on your good grace for us. Thank you for your love and your ongoing work in this church family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.